Hey, for those of you who don't know, my name is Seth, and um, I'm, hi, hi. Uh, I know a lot of you. I don't know all of you. I hope to get to know more of you more. And um, I, I serve here on our staff, one of the pastors. I get to share the word with you today. Who's excited to hear the word of God? Me too. I'm excited to hear the word of God. Um, we've been in this series for the past few uh, weeks. How many of y'all have been here for the Upside Down series? Wow, good. Nice. Love it. Come to church. That's good. Um, it's been a, I, I, really, I really love this series. I am so uh, just kind of mesmerized by the Sermon on the Mount. I come back to it over and over again in my walk with Jesus just because, I don't know, those, those words just remain fresh for me all the time. I go back and I'm like, really, Jesus? Oh, my goodness. This is a high calling. Wow. Um, but this focus in uh, the past few weeks has been on the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, which we call the Beatitudes. Uh, the Beatitudes are a section where Jesus says, blessed are the for, blessed are the, blessed are the. And uh, we've gone through several of the statements so far. In the first week, Craig uh, kind of brought this really beautiful, deep understanding of what it means to be blessed in the kingdom of God. And he also talked about how we can live in that blessed state, even in the, the, this position uh, that the world would call disadvantaged of being poor in spirit or when we are in mourning. And then for the next couple of weeks, J.O. and Dave and Clark and Stephen helped unpack what, what it meant to be blessed and be, and be peacemakers and be pure in heart and be merciful and to hunger and thirst after righteousness. Now today I want to talk to you about another statement within those Beatitudes that we haven't got to yet. But I want to begin by reading this whole passage. This is our, this is our primary passage for the series because I think that this, this statement is best understood in light of the rest of the passage. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5 today. Matthew chapter 5 is where the Sermon on the Mount begins. And uh, we're going to begin in verse 3. You guys ready to read the, read the word? Hey, what if we do this? I didn't even do this the other gatherings, but I love to do it. Can we stand for the reading of the word? Come on. It's old school, but it's fun. Oh, okay. Thank you. Um, all right, starting in verse three of chapter five. Uh, here we go. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I want to zoom in on one statement. This is going to be our focus today. Verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I want to uh, ask three questions. Hopefully seek to answer three questions today. Oh, you can sit down. <laughs> I would love to have you stand with me the whole time. I feel very encouraged by your standing, your standing upness. Um, 
three questions that I hope to, to tackle today. One, what did Jesus mean by meek? Two, what did Jesus mean by they shall inherit the earth? And three, why does it matter? No, <laughs> what is it? What is it? What does it mean for us today? How do we apply it today? How do we, how do we, how do we understand those truths and, and, and let them be real for us today in our walks with Jesus? Does that make sense? Those are our three questions that we're looking at. I want to begin by doing something a little bit different from what I normally would do. I usually don't spend a lot of time trying to talk about the definitions of English words in the Bible because the Bible wasn't originally written in English. However, I want to break away from my little tradition there, and I do want to talk about the, de the definition of an English word today because I think that the way we understand this English word in its modern sense is not really perfectly equivalent to what Jesus was saying when he said, blessed are the meek. Does that make sense? So I'm, we're going to look at the English word and how we understand that. And then we're going to look at the original word, which is in a different language. So meek, defined by Oxford. Quiet, gentle, easily imposed on, and submissive. Some other synonyms that might be used in its place. Docile, passive, timid, subdued and unassuming. Now, although our understanding of this word meek shares a lot of meaning with the original word that was used here in Matthew 5, 5, I do believe that the English word is carrying along with it some baggage that we need to not impose upon the meaning of Jesus. You following me? Uh-oh, we're going into a linguistics lesson. It's okay. Don't fall asleep. There is a purpose. We are getting somewhere. The original word for meek recorded in Matthew 5.5 5, is the word praus. It's okay if you don't know that word. It's not an English word. Praus is a Greek word. Seth, why do we care about Greek words? Because the New Testament is originally written in Greek. Seth, why is the New Testament originally written in Greek? Oh, great question. Most likely because, similar to the way the English is, a, is, is what we would call a common tongue and a trade language across most of the world today, in that time that these words were written... Greek was a trade language, a common tongue among the Mediterranean world where these documents were being sent. Does that make sense to everyone? Awesome. So, praus, this Greek word. How would Matthew, the writer of this gospel account, and his original audience, do you know why we care about the original audience? Because the Bible is for us, but it's not actually to us. Did you know that? The, now, we're, we're thankful because the word of God is timeless and it transcends culture, it transcends place, it transcends season, and we're thankful for all of that. But this, these documents actually did have an original audience. And it's important and helpful for us to be able to get into their minds as best we can and understand where they were coming from so that we can apply the meaning most accurately to our lives today. Does that make sense? If you want to understand the, the meaning of a letter, for example, it's good to know the original recipient because that brings context to the meaning of the letter. Yes. Okay. We agree. You guys, I mean, I'm just kind of making you say yes, but it's okay. You could say no. You could disagree. It would get awkward in here very quickly. But first, I want to look at the, at the similarities between the English word meek and the Greek word praus. Okay. Similarities. Praus, this Greek word, it does mean mild or gentle, and it has connotations connected with humility, okay? So that, that, that would be similar to the word meek. However, 
Prowess does not necessarily imply timidity. And it does not imply passivity. And it does not mean weakness. You know, it's an unfortunate rhyme. Meekness and weakness. I wish it weren't so. Because at least for the, uh, the original intent of this word, it certainly was not meant to convey weakness. Now, how, how, do you, how do you know that, Seth? Well, part of it is the way that it's used. So the adjective, describing word, yeah, I, we probably don't, we don't need to go there. Adjective, praus, noun form, prautes, okay? They're far more often translated as gentle and gentleness than they are meek. Far, far more. So that should help us begin to understand maybe a little bit different take on this word. Begin to color in the picture, okay? Now, how else can we help understand what this word means, different from what we already know the English word meek to mean? Well, it's good for us to take a look at how the word is used throughout the New Testament. Would you guys say that that's fair? When we see how it's used, it helps us gather the meaning of it. Okay, great. One thing that really sticks out to me is this. Jesus only uses this word pros two other times in the gospel accounts. And do you know what he's describing those two other times? If you were here for the other gatherings, you were not allowed to answer. That's a great guess because in the Old Testament, meekness is, is ascribed to, to Moses, yes. But the, when Jesus uses them, what he says is he is describing himself. The only other two times, other than blessed are the meek, that he uses this word praus is to describe himself. Now, what should that tell us? It should tell us that if we are going to define this word, it better be a good descriptor of Jesus. Does that make sense? Because he describes himself that way. So if we have an attached understanding in our minds to this word that is not a good descriptor of Jesus, then it is wrong. Because we know that Jesus, yes, he is gentle. But he is not weak. He's humble, but he is not timid. Amen, church? Oh, thank you. Now we're going to look at the noun form in, in, in several places here because it's actually used a lot in the epistles. The epistles, letters. It's used several times in in Paul's letters, and it's used twice in James and once in 1 Peter. We're going to look at a few of these uses to help color in how this word was used by the New Testament church. In 1 Corinthians 4, you're not maybe going to be able to turn to all of these because I'm going to do a little bit of rapid fire. I am doing this for a reason. Please, this is not just a linguistics lessons. This is Bible teaching. Okay. <laughs> in 1 Corinthians 4, Paul used it, this word, in the context of power and discipline. He says, this is what he basically says. He says, should I come with a rod? Should I come to you with a rod? He's speaking to the church in Corinth. Or should I come to you in proudness, in gentleness? It's like, hey, look, I'm coming to bring some correction either way. That's what I'm about to do. I'm the apostle Paul. I get to do that. But I could come in one of two ways. Which would you like? Would you like me to come with a rod? Or would you like to straighten up and I'll come to you in gentleness? I'm adding a little bit there, okay? Just what the word says is what the word says. I'm putting a little bit of commentary on it. But he does say, would you like, I can come in with a rod or I can come with gentleness. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul appeals to the humility and the proudness, the gentleness, once again, of Christ. 
says, I come to you in the humility and the gentleness of Christ. Once again, describing Jesus. If we're going to have a working definition of this word and Jesus and Paul both describe Jesus that way, it better be a good descriptor of Jesus. In Galatians 6, protest, gentleness, is the manner in which we should restore someone caught in sin. We go to that person, we receive them. We, we, there is correction that needs to take place, but it's done in a spirit of gentleness. We restore them when they're caught in sin. It's, it, it, you guys beginning to, are you beginning to see the picture that this word is, is painting as far as its usage? Okay, we're gonna go even deeper. Second Timothy 2. Paul instructs Timothy to, what does he instruct him to do here? He instructs them to correct his opponents. Does that make you feel warm inside? It makes me feel warm inside. To correct his opponents with prautes, with gentleness and hope that God may grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of truth. Correct in gentleness. And then finally in 1 Peter 3, Peter tells us that we must always, you may be familiar with this passage, we must always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks us for a reason for the hope that is in us. But what does he follow that up with? The word to do so with prautes, with gentleness and respect. To make a defense and gentleness. Now, why am I listing all, off all these uses of Greek word? I'm not trying to get super academic here. What I'm trying to do is help us understand what Jesus was saying when he said, blessed are the meek. I don't want us to have this 2022 Western world, our context understanding of, oh, this is what Jesus meant. We have to go back to what he was saying in the time to understand what, what, how the audience and how the writers would have understand, understood this word. I'm doing this because I don't believe that the modern understanding of the English word meek tells the whole story that Jesus was trying to communicate in Matthew 5, 5. What we see in many of these uses is an implication. I want to I list off very, very shortly in, in summarization the ways that, that gentleness was being applied. Okay? We can deliver truth. Exercise authority. Administer discipline. Correct opponents. And defend the truth. Those are the contexts that I was just listing that this gentleness is found. Now, those things can also be done in another way. You're like, no, we haven't seen any of that the past couple years. <laughs> they can be done aggressively and harshly and arrogantly, or they can be done praus. They can be done in a gentle way. I would argue based on its uses in the New Testament that to be gentle, to be proud, is not to shy away from conflict. It's not to shy away from reproof and heaven forbid shy away from the truth, but rather to engage with these things in a gentle manner. Proudness is not the opposite of boldness or strength. It's not. You know how we knew? Because Jesus was bold and he was strong. <laughs> It's not the opposite of boldness or strength. It is boldness and strength applied through a kingdom lens, applied within the character of Christ. It is boldness and strength with Jesus' heart written all over it. Okay, 
Do we feel like we have a working understanding of what Jesus meant when he said meek? Awesome. Let's move on. Shall inherit the earth. Okay, what does that mean? Shall inherit the earth. That could, that could mean a few things. Well, sometimes it's helpful whenever, you know, just like we did with, with Prowess, it's important for us to look at other places in the scripture that might use that phrase. Would you say that that's helpful to help us gain understanding? Well, there's this really interesting chapter in the Psalms that uses that phrase five times. Pretty cool, pretty interesting. Wouldn't expect that, huh? Psalm 37. Now, the, great, the greater narrative here is that what's being outlined by David, it's a Psalm of David, is the fate of the righteous or the results or the rewards of the righteous and the fate or the rewards, not really rewards, I mean the bad rewards, of the wicked, okay? Now what's, what's, what's pretty cool here is that Psalm 3711 is almost word for word, Matthew 5, 5. It's in Psalm 37, 11, it says, but the meek will inherit the land. We go like, what it says earth? Well, again, land and earth would be understand similarly. Again, land is going to be a Hebrew word. Okay, earth is going to be Greek word, but it, I'm not going to go any deeper than that because I already feel like I'm about to lose you and I'm not, I refuse. I refuse. Essentially, it's a similar understanding of that word. Now, why would Jesus quote Matthew, I'm sorry, why would Jesus quote Psalm 37, 11 in Matthew 5? Well, something that Jesus seems to like to do because he does it pretty often is he quotes or he, he brings in Old Testament scripture, Old Covenant ideas, and then he brings new meaning to them. And often what he does, I mean, many scholars believe that for in this particular case, in Matthew 5, 5, what Jesus is doing is he's endorsing Psalm 37, 11 as a messianic prophecy. That is to say, often what Jesus does, he brings this passage from the Old Testament and he goes, I have come. To fulfill this. I've come to fulfill this. So he references the old covenant and then he brings this new, fresh meaning to it that only he can define as our Messiah. Messiah, Jewish word equivalent to Christ, anointed one, uh, chosen one. He's uh, our, our, our savior. We look at Messiah. The Messiah is the one that, that ethnic Israel was waiting upon. He is the Christ. So, we now, with that understanding of looking at Psalm 37 and seeing that Jesus is, is, is kind of quoting Psalm 37, 11, what, what, what meaning are we going to gain from that? Well, David, uh, the, the, the psalmist would have probably understood when he said inherit the land, he would have been referring to the land of Canaan. That was, that was most common when they were talking about inheriting the land. Why would it be Canaan? Canaan was the geographic home of Israel. It was their promised land. We know that? Awesome. But Jesus, again, bringing new meaning to this word, it appears that, especially in context of of the whole of Psalm 37, when we're talking again, again, what are we talking about? The rewards of the righteous versus the results for the wicked. That what Jesus is actually doing right here is he's taking something from the natural in Psalm 37 and he's actually bringing an eschatological meaning to it. Uh Uh-oh. I'm not gonna leave you there, don't worry. Eschatological. It means that he was speaking about the end of things or the eternal state of things. Now, what would point to that? Inherit the earth. How does, what, is, what does that have to do with the end of things or the eternal state of things? Well, I'll recall to you in Revelations 21, 
that what we see is those who are resurrected in Christ. Did you know that you're going to be resurrected if you are a believer in Jesus? That you're not just going to float around in some nebulous zone, but there's going to be a day when you're actually physically resurrected and, and that we are going to inherit, what is it? The new earth. Oh my goodness. The meek are going to be resurrected and going to inherit the new earth, the renewed creation. An eschatological statement. And this is, a, this is especially visible when we look at the other statements from the Beatitudes. He talks about a state of humanity, and then he talks about a result. And almost every statement of those we see appears to be eschatological in nature. It appears to be an eternal state of things. See, in Matthew 5, 5, like the other Beatitudes, we see this 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 idea coming together of an upside-down kingdom. That's why this series is called Upside Down. You see, Jesus' audience in that moment would have seen that the ruthless and dominant rulers of the day were the ones controlling the, the world. But like Jesus does throughout the Sermon on the Mount, he, he totally flips the script. And he goes, no, 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 no. In the end, it's going to be the gentle. I know what you have seen is those dominant people who would just pile drive their way and they're the ones who are in control of things but that's only for a season that's only for a season he comes there was a, a one of the main reasons that ethnic israel was a largely not accepting of jesus as messiah is because he wasn't the kind of king that they were expecting there was a grand expectation of the messiah that he would be a great and powerful military leader and he would physically deliver the nation of Israel from under control of pagan rulers. At the time, in that specific moment, was Rome. And oh my goodness, how could this great ruler die on a cross, the most humiliating spectacle in the Roman world? Different kind of king. Oh, he was coming to bring deliverance. But it was so much deeper than a temporal deliverance from a pagan authority. He came to destroy the works of the enemy and bring an eternal, long-lasting, forever-lasting, deeper than anything we can taste or see or feel kind of deliverance. An upside-down kingdom. I want to paraphrase Matthew 5, 5 for you today after all these studies and, and, and digging into this. So everyone, this is not the actual scripture. <laughs> Soundbite generation. This is an extrapolation that I hope will help us understand what Jesus was probably saying here. The actual scripture, again, I'll remind you before I read this other thing. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Said in another way. Those who walk in gentleness are at a great advantage in the kingdom of God. For in the end, the renewed creation will be theirs to steward and enjoy. I'm going to say it one more time because I have a bit of a reputation for make thing, making things long and complicated. And really, I don't view it that way. I think, I think, I think that's fake news. <laughs> I call it clarity. <laughs> <Okay>. <sighs> the staff members are especially 
erupting in laughter because they have to deal with me on a day-to-day basis. I think maybe some, on, my, on my headstone when I die, it's going to say, just to be clear, ellipsis, just to be clear, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> or could you clarify, dot, dot, dot? Please don't let anyone do that to me if I die tomorrow. I refuse. Do something else. Something more redemptive. Do not put anything about clarity on my headstone. Goodness sakes. <clears throat> anyway. Okay, so as I was studying this statement, let's, let's talk about what does this mean for us today, right? So we, we kind of have an idea of what, it mean, uh, what meekness is, and we have an idea of shall inherit the earth means. But, but how, what do we do with that? What do we do with that now? Well, as I, was, as I was reflecting and studying this statement made by Jesus, I couldn't help but think about the Western church, the current state of the Western church. You see, we're full of people that seem to fall on one side of a swinging pendulum or the other. What do you mean by that, Seth? This is, this is what I mean. Either we're so concerned with offending the world that we have compromised on the truth of God's word. That one gets some amens. That one gets some amens because it's like, obviously, we're seeing that in place. But there's also another side to that. That was over here and over here. Or we're so concerned with compromising on the truth of God's word that we've been needlessly offensive to the world. We're so, we're, we're so concerned about offending the world that we've compromised on the truth. Or we're so, we're so concerned with compromising on the truth that we're needlessly, needlessly. Now, we are going to offend the world, church. Jesus was clear. They gonna hate you because of me. That was a paraphrase. I just want to be clear. Okay. All right, I heard two quotes recently. These quotes do not come from the scriptures. But I do find them to be very apt for this moment. And when you hear the quotes, they may appear to be, uh, they may p- appear to be disagreeing, but I would, I would make uh, the argument that they're actually one unified truth uh, uh, held in tension in, 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 in paradox, okay? So first quote. The Bible is offensive enough to the world on its own. It doesn't need your help. What do I mean by that? Or what, I, that's not my quote. It doesn't matter what I mean by it. What I think it means, what I think it means, what I believe it to mean, is that you could literally quote scriptures in certain passages, even in the New Testament, friends, by the way, same God through the whole Bible, in case you got that confused. Same God. Same God. Anyway, sorry, that was just a little little soapbox of mine. It's not all of a sudden that Jesus came on the scene and God went from like like angry to all nice and and butterflies. That's, That's actually not how it goes at all. That's a different, that's a topic for a different day. I can't even go there today. But there are certain passages that we can read of Scripture that if we read it to the world with ears that have not been illuminated by the Holy Spirit, it is going to be offensive on its own. Just quote word for word. It doesn't need added, disgruntled, angry commentary in addition to make it even more offensive. Do you feel me? 
It's like you don't need to paraphrase scripture to make it more offensive than it already is to the world. Trust me, you don't. You don't. Next quote. It's concerning to me how scripture is becoming offensive to parts of the church. If the Bible offends you, it's because you are more in tune with the world than you are with the Holy Spirit. Uh, Look, I'm not trying to call anyone out today because I've been offended by the scriptures before. Okay? I've been offended by the scriptures before. But do you know what I have found? This is what I have found. I get offended by a scripture and I'm just like, God, what is that about? Two years pass. Oh, shoot. You totally know what you're talking about and I so don't. Now, that's two years on this earth. Let me just ask you to imagine for a moment you're standing before Jesus after all this has passed away. And what a revelation it's going to be at that moment. It's going to be much bigger than a, oh. It's going to be more awe and more wonder than you could ever imagine the depth of the wisdom of God compared to ours. You know one of my prayers as of late, God, I'm so glad you don't think like me. It's a good thing he doesn't think like you. Now, do we want to conform our thoughts to his? Of course. But I mean, you and of yourself. (laughs) Me and of myself. I'm glad that his thoughts aren't, aren't my thoughts. To live out the meekness that Jesus speaks of, this praus, uh, prautes, I'm convinced that we must be fierce defenders of the truth. Amber, Inland Alarm is calling me. Okay, anyway. That we must be fierce defenders. <laughs> Probably should have it on do not disturb while I'm preaching, I would imagine. I guess it's not on. <laughs> um. <laughs> that we are to be the fierce defenders of God's truth, which a lot of times that gets a hearty Amen. But we're alls, also, alls. <laughs> you know what? It's the 11-11. We're just gonna, we're gonna tighten things up a little bit. We're not gonna say both syllables of also. <laughs> what in the world? That we're also to be fiercely committed to delivering that truth in gentleness and humility. Oh, Seth, oh, I don't know if I like that one as much. You had me at truth. You didn't have me so much when you said gentle. Now, most of us, um, we have a lean or we have a tendency. But we don't get to choose one of those or the other. Well, I'm a gentle kind of person or I'm a truthful kind of person. No. Jesus did not give us that option. And, and this, is, this is what I love. Actually, I'm saying that sarcastically. Uh, I don't love this. People go, well, that's just the way I am. Hey, like, like I, hey, you know what? You, you, you were kind of being, you were kind of being abrasive right there. You know, you like didn't have to be mean when you said that. You know, that could have been said, that's just the way I am. That's just the way I am. Ain't nobody going to change me. Do you know that that is so anti-biblical? Like, (laughs) people think that that is in the Bible, I think, because of how often Christians say it. And it ain't. Do you want to know one of the first things that Jesus preached for almost like his first recorded mini sermonette? Repent. That's just the way I am. 
No. Repent. I love the rest of the statement, though. Repent, for the kingdom has come very close. He doesn't, he doesn't just say repent and then leave us and be like, I hope you can figure that out. He says repent. And then he basically grabs us by the hands and the feet and the legs and we get to walk on his feet like walking on dad's feet. He goes, repent. I'm right here helping you out all, every step of the way. Every step. Every step of the way. Will you just be willing? Will you just step onto my feet? I'd love to guide you. We don't get to say that's just the way I am. <clears throat> we all know that it isn't meek to blow up on someone who disagrees with us. I was hoping to get a lot more response than that. Yeah. <laughs> we can agree on that. But here, here's, here's something that I, would argue, that I would argue as well. It isn't biblical meekness for us to be silent and to acquiesce when falsehoods are being spread and being spoken in our presence. That's also not biblical meekness. Well, you know, I'm just, um, just kind of shy, so I don't, really, um, I don't really interject with truth whenever a bunch of godless garbage is being spoken in my presence. Sorry, that was a little strong. Untruth, falsehood. That's gentler. You don't get to make that excuse. You don't get to make an excuse for being a meanie. I'm on stage. The, every other, there's so many other words, but I'm like, I don't, that doesn't feel appropriate. <laughs> Seriously, I don't want to stumble any of you. I don't want you to stop listening to me for the rest of the sermon just because I said a word that you have decided is not appropriate. Um, but we also, but we also don't get to make the excuse, well, I'm just kind of a, I'm just kind of a shy into my, I just don't really share, I don't really share truth. It's kind of like out of my, it's not really my thing. No, it is your thing. You're a son or you're a daughter of God. If you're in Christ, you're a son or a daughter of God. It is your thing to show, share truth. And it is your, it is your thing to be kind. It's your thing to share truth gently. Well, I don't know, Seth. I, that's not how I self-identify. And let me tell you, it's your thing. Trust me, it's your thing to speak truth and to speak it in gentleness. Trust me, it's your thing. <laughs> we must realize in this cultural moment, okay, we must realize in this cultural moment that it is not inherently rude or hateful to speak truth. Is that controversial to you? It shouldn't be. It is not inherently rude or hateful to speak truth. Okay? Okay. Okay. But also, just because you're getting worked up and intense and speaking in your preacher voice and diving down an octave or typing really fast, that's worse, it doesn't mean that you have spoken truth. Did you know that? You can sound as spiritual as Elijah, and it does not mean that you are speaking truth when you are saying it. Both of those things are true. As I was preparing this message, just so you guys know, I'm, 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 I struggle with this. I struggle with this. And everyone who has been in a serious meeting with me probably can say, yep, Seth, you kind of do. Yeah, especially certain meetings. I went to God this week and I said, what is my tendency, God? 
where am I leaning? Where, where am I going to an extreme? And uh, his answer was very displeasing to me. It was a good answer. It was a great answer. I mean, <laughs> he was right, but I didn't really like to hear it. He goes, oh, both. Mm-hmm. You do both. Oh, God, I wasn't even teaching that as an option this week. And then, I, and then he began to show me and recount in my heart and in my mind all those times when I have been silent when I should have spoken and all those times when I have come so harshly when I should have come in, in gentleness. And the truth that he shared with me wasn't crushing. It was gentle, but it was true. I have done both, and I wonder if you're in the same boat. I wonder if you have been silent when you should have spoken. And I wonder if you have let your emotions get the best of you and be harsh when you should have been gentle. You see, gentleness, gentleness, the, the very idea of gentleness implies that you could have responded another way. Gentleness isn't just a matter of you, of you being naturally not very conflict-driven. Gentleness is, is an intentional act. It's an intentional way that we approach things. It is to say, when a, a philosopher um, that I listen to sometimes, I'm not going to say his name because I don't know that all of his stuff is good. He found a very old definition for the word, for, uh, meek, very ancient definition. And the way that it was defined was holding a sword, but refusing to take it from its sheath. The implication was that power and authority <laughs> to wreak havoc was there, but a decision was made to handle it in a different way. And that doesn't seem to fall very far from the idea of who? Jesus. You think that when he was hanging on that cross, you think that he couldn't have commanded all of heaven to wipe those guys into oblivion? Of course he could. But he went, no, I, I, I know the purpose for this. I know why I came. I know, I'm, I, I know why I'm here. 